welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Today, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Andrew Newberg to the show. Dr. Newberg is the Director of Research at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health and a physician at Jefferson University Hospital. He is board certified in internal medicine and nuclear medicine. Andrew has been asking questions about reality, truth, and God since he was very young and has long been fascinated by the human mind and its complex workings. Andrew's research now largely focuses on how brain function is associated with various mental states, in particular religious and mystical experiences. His research has included brain scans of people in prayer, meditation, rituals, and trance states, as well as surveys of people's spiritual experiences and attitudes. He has also evaluated the relationship between religious or spiritual phenomenon and health and the effect of meditation on memory. He believes that it is important to keep science rigorous and religion religious. Andrew is the author of several books, including How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain and Neurotheology, How Science Can Enlighten Us About Spirituality. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you, thanks for having me on the podcast. So let's start with two questions I have. One, what is nuclear medicine? And two, what is neurotheology? Well, nuclear medicine may be a little easier to define. Um, basically, that's the study where we do some type of some type of scan that where we inject some kind of radioactive tracer into a person and then follow some aspect of the body's physiology. So we can do this with the brain, we do it with other body parts as well. But uh, the general uh, gist of it is, is that we, um, we're trying to look at something functional that's going on in the brain. And so we can look at brain uh, blood flow, metabolism, different neurotransmitters as well. So it's a whole field of medicine um, that's used for a lot of clinical work, but we also use it a lot for research as well. So uh, neurotheology is a little bit more difficult to define. Uh, what it really is, is an emerging field uh, of research and scholarship that seeks to understand the relationship between uh, the re our religious and spiritual selves and our biological selves, in particular, the brain. For me to have neurotheology work as a term, because there's other terms that we could theoretically use, we could think about uh, psycho-spirituality or bio-religion or something like that. You know, so there's a lot of different possible options. Neurotheology seems to be the one that is kind of stuck. Uh, I think mostly because it just kind of sounds cool. But, um, but neurotheology, I think, works as a term if we consider it in a couple of ways. One is, is that we have to consider it uh, very broadly. So the neuro side is not just neuroscience, but it is also looking at uh, our, our physical cells, what goes on physiologically, our, you know, our immune system, our hormones. It also has to do with our, uh, you know, our psyche and our psychology as well, uh, as well as even things like anthropology and sociology, you know, in terms of how we understand the human person. On the other side, the theology side, you know, theology is a very specific discipline that looks at highly analytical approach to a given religious tradition, but uh, which, is, which is part of what we can look at with neurotheology. But neurotheology also needs to be broader in that context that we're looking not just at theology proper, but we're looking at religious and spiritual beliefs and experiences and practices and so forth. Uh, so that, you know, if we think about neurotheology in very broad terms on both sides, that's, I think, fundamentally important. 
And the other thing that I always like to really stress is that neurotheology is really a two-way street in the sense that uh, we're not, it's not just neuroscience looking at religion, it's not just religion looking at neuroscience, but it's the two of them looking at each other and with the ultimate goal of trying to kind of understand who we are as human beings. So if we kind of go with, with those definitions, um, that's really how uh, neurotheology, I think, works as a term and as a field. And uh, it's been something that's kind of been developing, you know, in particular over the last 20 years or so, and hopefully has a very rich future, uh, exploring a variety of different aspects of how our biological and our spiritual selves intersect. So is it is it its own field of study? Like, would it is the hope that it becomes its own field of study, really? Yes. Like you become a neurotheologist? Exactly. Yes. Uh, I mean, that would be my my hope. Uh, which would be I think I need to go back to school for this. <laughs> this is like exactly what I would have wanted I, to do. I get asked that a lot. You know, there, uh, <laughs> I, I'm hoping to be able to do something like that and to be able to offer a degree uh, perhaps a master's um, or, or even a PhD and it. You know, obviously there's overlap. So people, you know, in, today, you know, much like myself, can kind of come at it from a more, you know, medical or scientific or psychological perspective. Uh, others come at it from a more kind of theological or, or religious or spiritual perspective. Um, that's kind of how it's been done right now. But the idea of trying to kind of bring in people who really have, you know, one foot planted in both both sides of the discussion uh, I think would ultimately be really, really helpful. So I'm hoping that uh, as we continue to kind of do the research and get people interested and, and work towards developing some educational programs, it would be great to have it become its own unique field. I, I think I think the topic is deserving of having its own field because it's not it's not psychology, it's not neuroscience, um, it's not theology. It is kind of this interesting hybrid. And so in, in medicine, we have things like neuropsychiatry, or we have psychoneuroimmunology or something like that. Um, so we know that there are these kind of hybrids that just don't quite, you know, find a home in one particular discipline or another. And, uh, and so hopefully, uh, you know, much, much like those, um, this will be something that would be able to have its own have its own uh, own unique uh, place in academia at some point. Well, and I think it speaks to, I was going to get to this later, but it speaks to sort of what we were, you were the questionnaire at a conference that I virtually attended. And one of the things that it seemed like, you know, sort of more Western thinking tries to do is separate science and spirituality. And one of the points that the speaker was making was that you can't separate them. They should be fully integrated. Right. And it sounds like that's more where this is, is that rather than pulling them apart, it's really an integrated way of thinking about it. Absolutely. Um, and that is, you know, we, we, it is something that we really want to emphasize uh, as we go forward, because uh, you know, now obviously it takes a bit of a more Western perspective and it utilizes science um, to be, you know, in the ways science can be utilized. And I think that is important because, you know, one of the concerns that one has is if you kind of start with more of a, a, a religious or spiritual perspective is how are they looking at science and how, are, how is science being utilized in that context? We want, we want both sides to be utilizing science well. We want both sides to be utilizing the spiritual or, or the religious prop, you know, well and properly. And, uh, and yes, I mean, I really think it is kind of a, a true hybrid in that regard, that it is looking to, to find ways of bringing them together rather than in separating them. But it also recognizes that there are certain times where separation may be important. So, you know, that's okay, too. I mean, it, there, are, there can be times where we really do kind of a brain scan of something spiritual, you know, where science really is looking at something spiritual. But, but then we need to go beyond that and say, well, what does it exactly mean? You know, does that 
Does that tell us something about the nature of spirituality? Does it tell us, you know, it, it doesn't have to necessarily be reductive in that, in that regard, that we can really appreciate both sides, even though we're looking at it from one perspective or another. And what do you find when you're looking at the brain scans of people with a spiritual practice and faith? And how do you define what constitutes a spiritual practice or a faith-based practice? Sure. So, you know, uh, let me take the second question first. Um, you know, part of what is also essential in neurotheology is um, definitions and, and how people think about things and talk about things. So uh, we rely a lot on people's own qualitative or subjective definitions. I, I don't apply what I think is a spiritual, you know, practice or something like that to what somebody's doing. I'm asking them, you know, you tell me what is what is it that makes this spiritual? What is it that you feel? What are the elements of it that you, makes you call this something that's religious or spiritual? How do you differentiate religion from spirituality? There, you know, just some fascinating questions. And and who should be the one making those definitions? Um, you know, should we get a bunch of theologians in a room? Should we get a bunch of psychologists in a room, a bunch of philosophers? Um, you know, so everybody kind of has different definitions depending on what, you know, what their own perspectives are. And, and I think, you know, that is also uh, very important for us to think about. Now, you know, that being said, what we have done is bring uh, probably by now, maybe four or 500 different individuals into our lab to, to study and they do a variety of different kinds of religious and spiritual practices, including a variety of different meditation, yoga practices, uh, various prayer practices, other spiritual practices. Um, you know, you mentioned in your introduction about being a medium. Um, so we did a study of uh, Brazilian mediums, actually, who came up from Brazil to, to be with us. And, uh, and we scan their brains. And uh, we use a variety of different tools. Um, so sometimes we use um, something called functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI. Uh, you mentioned our, we had our initial discussion about nuclear medicine. So sometimes we use nuclear medicine techniques like um, what's called PET imaging or SPECT imaging, which both involve injecting some kind of radioactive tracer while the person is doing a practice. Those are very good for um, studying these kinds of practices at times because people can be in a more natural uh, environment. And so with the MRI, for example, you have to be kind of like lying down and you know very flat and very still. Uh, some practices are great for that, but then there's others that are much more difficult to do that. And, and certainly, you know, if you're doing any kind of dancing or move body movements, or if you need certain postures or something like that, um, these really can't be done with an MRI scanner. And so we have employed some of these other nuclear medicine techniques as a way of trying to capture what's going on in these states when people are engaged in, in, in them and, uh, and then look at the similarities and differences. And we've developed this whole sort of model of what we think is going on in the brain uh, when people are engaged in these kinds of practices. And what is going on? Well, uh, in general, lots of things. And so, you know, the, uh, you know, one of the, I guess, take-home points in, in all of the research that we've done is that there doesn't seem to be just, you know, one spiritual spot of the brain or one spiritual part of the brain. Uh, it's not just one part like lights up when you become spiritual and then quiets down when you stop. But um, uh, it really does look like there are many different parts of the brain that become involved. And, and in many ways, I don't think that's surprising. Uh, if you think about, uh, and if the listeners think about, you know, what they consider to be religious and spiritual practices or experiences, um, there are many different elements to them. And there are, you know, there's language that might be used, there could be imagery, there could be a whole variety of emotional responses that people can have. Um, there can be, you know, different movements and behaviors that people do. So there's a ton of different things that are going on. So to me, it makes sense that you actually do engage a lot of different parts of the brain 
uh, as part of those practices. And then what we can try to do is tie them together. So for example, you know, a lot of meditation practices will involve focused attention. You know, you're concentrating on a prayer, on a phrase, on an image, something like that. And, uh, and when people are concentrating, when they're focusing uh, on anything, they activate their frontal lobes. So when we study these kinds of meditation practices where their frontal lobes become activated, uh, that's usually occurring when people are having very um, kind of attention focusing processes that are part of the meditation. Now, there's other kinds of spiritual practices. So, you know, like going back to the mediums, you know, here they're entering into a trance state. And instead of kind of purposely connecting with the spirits, um, they feel that this, you know, their subjective experiences that the spirits come to them. And so when people have that kind of an experience where you don't feel like you're in charge of the process, but it's something that kind of happens to you, the frontal lobes, instead of being uh, increased, actually become decreased. And so we've seen that in a number of circumstances where mm-hmm. a person kind of surrenders to the process or feels taken over by the process or you know whatever the circumstances may be. Um, so that that's also part of what we see. And then you know again, I'm picking, I'm just picking and choosing a few specifics and a few important aspects of this. But um, another area of our brain that we think is involved is the parietal lobe, which is located in the back of the brain. And this is part of our brain that helps us to take our sensory information and helps us to kind of construct our, sen- our spatial representation of ourself. Well, in a lot of these practices, we feel that we lose that sense of self. We feel we have a sense of connectedness or oneness with God, with the spirits, with the universe, you know, whatever it is that the person is, is experiencing. Um, and so uh, what we see there is actually a decrease, again, of activity in the parietal lobe, which makes sense to us because, you know, if the parietal lobe normally is kind of helping you to create your sense of self, then the opposite of that, losing your sense of self should be associated with a decrease of activity in the parietal lobe. And again, that's exactly what we see. Uh, other areas like the emotional centers of the brain can become very activated when they're very intense kinds of experiences. So. It really, you know, it, it, and again, from there, we just kind of keep going with the different elements of these experiences and practices and then see how they relate to what's going on in the brain. Have you compared the brains of people who are in these states with the brains of people who are experiencing like a psilocybin or, you know, some sort of... Yeah, um, yeah that's a great question. Psychedelic-induced? Um, so... We have not done a direct comparison of brain scans. There has been a few investigators who have looked at that. And yes, I mean, again, same sort of thing. They're finding that there is a decrease of uh, activity in the parietal lobe and in the frontal lobes that seems to be associated with this feeling of kind of getting, you know, being taken over and having these kind of really wild experiences. Now, again, with them, there's a lot more going on in some of the sensory areas, not surprisingly, the visual cortex and things like that. But but that depends also. I mean, again, certain spiritual practices can be highly visual. Others are highly auditory. You know, um, others don't have any of that kind of sensory experience. So uh, it really it really can depend. We did a study. We've been running an online survey uh, over the last like 10 years where we asked people about their experiences. And what we did find was that in those people who had reported intense spiritual experiences under the effects of a drug like psilocybin, um, that they seem to be every bit as kind of real and spiritual as those people who have had the you know more quote unquote natural experiences through meditation or some other mechanism. So. 
to me, you know, this is one of the big sort of jigsaw puzzles of, of uh, neurotheology that, you know, there's lots of pieces to it. So there's studying practices like meditation, prayer, there's studying, uh, you know, other types of spiritual experiences like mediumship or, or we did a study of speaking in tongues. There's drug-induced experiences. There's uh, experiences that occur because of some type of pathology. People have seizure disorders, for example. And so, you know, tr- and, and there's, there's many other, you know, examples, but, but trying to understand how each of these different ways, avenues, if you will, uh, of getting into these spiritual experiences uh, occurs. Um, are the experiences the same, different, and so forth? There's a lot of wonderful, wonderful questions that come about, and, and we're, we're just trying to explore all that. So how do you define enlightenment? versus awakening? This was another question that yeah. came up in the talk the other day. Well, you know, actually, yeah. I, 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 I didn't have the opportunity because I wasn't really the featured speaker, but um, in, in our book, How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, what we talk about actually are two kinds of experiences, which I kind of relate to that uh, question. Uh, we call them sort of the big E and little e experiences. So the little e experiences are these more awakenings. And and these are things that almost everybody can have, even on a very minor level, you know, solving some problem at work or trying, you know, figuring out a way to handle a relationship problem or something like that. There are lots of different ways uh, in which people have these little moments throughout their lives that they uh, that they experience. And then, you know, they, they feel like they, they learn something. They, they suddenly know something different. And does that feel like it comes from outside of yourself? Is is there a distinguishing feature there? Yeah, uh, sometimes it can, you know, I mean, certainly you talk to like, you know, some of the great musicians, they, you know, sometimes it feels like, you know, they're, they're not having an enlightenment experience in the larger E, you know, the big E experience, but but, you know, you, you listen to how the Beatles, you know, got some of, the, you know, just like they woke up and they had the song in their head kind of thing. It can feel like it's coming from outside. But usually there is something where there's that aha moment, you know, there's that little sort of creative rush that occurs. Now, the big E experiences, I mean, those are what we more typically think about as, an, as enlightenment. And, uh, and those are the ones that really radically change an entire person's way of being, way of life, you know, their sense of spirituality, their sense of meaning and purpose in life. You know, they don't, maybe they no longer fear death and so forth. So there's, there's, you know, those really intense, big E enlightenment experiences, which have life, you know, changed everything about the person's life, as opposed to these smaller experiences that maybe just help them in one, one domain of life. Gotcha. And so when we think of enlightenment, I think sort of the traditional thought is that you're in that phase permanently, but it's not, it's not really, it's more of a, you have the experience of being enlightened. Well, so, that shifts. Yeah, well, and I, I mean, this is another very interesting piece of what enlightenment is. Um, so there are sort of two things, there, there are two very big aspects about enlightenment. One is the moment or the experience of enlightenment, which, you know, theoretically, you know, a, rare, a relatively rare number of people have, and then there's being enlightened, which is what happens after that. Um, and that you know, presumably everything that that person knew or understood about the world has radically changed and changed the way they think about things. So, um, you know, they, they go forward in a kind of permanently enlightened state, even though they are no longer having the experience of enlightenment. And so, you know, these are the interesting features to think about in the context of enlightenment. And of course, you know, in the book uh, that we wrote about enlightenment, we noted one other kind of interesting aspect of enlightenment, which was called the age of enlightenment about two or 300 years ago, which was supposed to get us away from all the spirituality, that enlightenment was supposed to be more from reason and thought and science as opposed to something spiritual. 
So, you know, enlightenment itself ultimately, you know, in its very basic meaning is, you know, coming from the darkness into the light and knowing the world in a new way, whether it ultimately winds up being a spiritual enlightenment or a scientific enlightenment um, or a social enlightenment. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways of thinking about it in the, in the long run. But, but I think normally, you know, as you were alluding to, I mean, most of the time when we think about enlightenment, we're thinking about those individuals who have had these very unusual experiences and now, you know, basically go around in a whole different kind of way in terms of how they think about the world and how they how they look at things. Can you self-induce enlightenment or is it typically a spontaneous experience that happens to you? I mean, I guess meditation, if you're going to meditate, yeah. right? Maybe you right. have a right. experience. But I was going to say the answer to your question is yes. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, to some degree, with, 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 with a few exceptions, which we talk about in our book also, um, which were quite fascinating, where it did literally happen spontaneously to somebody who was not even trying to get it. Most of the time, people are on, on some path that they're trying to get to some answer, some new way of thinking about things. Some, you know, very specifically are doing practices like meditation for, you know, even many hours, uh, many days, many years uh, with the goal of seeking some kind of enlightenment experience. So um, there is a, uh, you know, what, as a general rule, there tends to be a purposefulness to it that people are striving for something that's different. But the moment that it happens almost always has that spontaneous elements to it. So you can meditate for 30 years and you never know exactly when that moment of enlightenment is going to happen or exactly why it will happen. You know, there, there is a spontaneousness to it, but there's also the ability to sort of purposely go after it. And, and, and I think that there's some combination of the two. Uh, and in fact, you know, as we were talking about a little while ago, there's a, a certain extent to which there's a letting go or surrendering to the experience that is part of that process. And so we talk about that, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, people can kind of develop and build their pathways and build rituals and practices that can help them towards it. But there's never the guarantee that it will happen and, and finding that balance between striving for it and letting go. Uh, and letting it come to you, I think, is part of that process. But exactly how and when or why that will happen, we never fully know. Uh, on the other hand, what our data, I think, are kind of optimistically showing is is that virtually anyone can have that kind of an experience. Um, and, and in many ways, anyone can have the experience. So, it, you know, it's not restricted to the monks who are, you know, sitting on that mountaintop in Tibet. Um, you know, it's not restricted to nuns. Uh, it really... Uh, most of the people who hit, hit our survey, about 2,000 people, were regular people. You know, there was nothing specific about them that made them any more u- more or less unique than anybody else. But um, other than the fact that they told us about their spiritual experience. <laughs> so I guess the, the if you're a Buddhist monk, I guess the, what you have in your favor is that you are in meditation more frequently, perhaps, than, you know, you or I right. Certainly me. I'm not going to presume you aren't uh, meditating, yeah. except for this time we're talking. Right. But the more you you engage in those acts, the higher the likelihood is to have an I think so. Uh, you know, as a general statement, yes. But again, you know, we never fully know exactly when or how it will happen. And so there are lots of different avenues and lots of different pathways for people to go uh, in order to have those kinds of experiences. How we've like split off science from spirituality. Do you see them as integrated? I mean, this is what you do. Sure. 
So, well, you know, I, I think they certainly can be, and I think, and I think the brain is a wonderful place for that to happen. I mean, ultimately, you know, the practices, the meditation practices, the experiences that we have, there's a part of them that are felt in the brain, and so looking at the brain is a wonderful intersection for understanding the relationship between spirituality and who we are as human, you know, who we are biologically. Mm-hmm. I, certainly. You know, there are parts of science which have a uniqueness to them. There are parts of spirituality that have a uniqueness to them. And, and that also is part of that. And uh, and that's great, you know, for people to pursue those different pathways. And, and there are certainly times where they come in conflict with each other. But, you know, I mean, uh, there are scientific theories that come into conflict with each other within science. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways of thinking about things. And, uh, and, and there's also, I think part of what happens also with science is that, it, you know, it's really good at answering how questions uh, not always so great with answering why questions. And, and that's where sometimes I think religious and spiritual beliefs come in, that sometimes they can help us to understand some of the why elements, some of the, certainly some of the more uh, questions about moral implications uh, and how we as human beings are to behave and what's right and what's wrong. There's no real way to design a scientific experiment to tell you what is morally correct when it comes to, you know, the coronavirus or and, and, and lives versus the economy and, and all that kind of thing. I mean, there's no way to do a scientific study to tell you that. It, it becomes a moral question and, and people have different ways of thinking about things morally. And that, that's part of what this is all about, you know, part of what neurotheology is about, which is you know, how did you go around to each person? You know, how are you thinking about this? How are you, you know, we, we uh, I think one of the real strengths in, in a lot of the research we've been trying to work towards is is to rely more on the individuals, on, on the regular people of the world. Uh, and not, you know, when if you ask me the question, what is enlightenment? I would much rather tell you what, you know, Joe Smith had to say about his experience and Mary Jones had to say about her experience than what Buddha had to say about his experience. You know, I, I mean, there, there's value in both. You know, there's certainly value in knowing what the, the great thinkers and, and the great mystics of history have, have said about these things. But we also need to go around and ask what everybody else thinks too. Um, and uh, there, there's power in, in both ways of looking at things. What do you think it would look like if we, if oh. everybody had enlightened mint experience. Well, I mean, you know, on one hand, um, it would certainly be a wonderful, uh, hopefully a wonderful world. I think in many ways, you know, it it is the goal of most religious and spiritual traditions to get people to that next level of understanding, you know, to have everybody look at each other in a more inclusive kind of way, to have people be more compassionate and understanding about everything. And so, you know, in that regard, uh, if more and more people had an experience of enlightenment, it would uh, lead to sort of a more cohesive society, um, and, you know, and again, you know, more understanding and, and more uh, and less uh, aggression and, uh, and violence in the world. So uh, I think it could really be a, a wonderful possibility. But of course, the question is, how do people get there and, um, and how can we help people to get there? So it's, uh, you know, kind of a goal of what neurotheology is about as well. This is the more sort of practical applied aspect of neurotheology, which is, you know, are there ways of trying to help people towards uh, getting to these kinds of experiences? And if we can get enough people to get into those experiences, um, you know, what kind of substantial effect can that have on society as a whole? And hopefully we can get there. Are there other ways other than meditation to have these experiences or prayer, or, which I feel like can kind of fall in that same Sure, bucket? sure. Um, well, meditation and prayer are certainly among the more common ones. Um, you know, you had mentioned uh, drugs like psilocybin, um, you know, whether uh, that's a, a you know, a, a, an appropriate way for people to go. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, one of the 
we didn't quite mention this before, but one of the things that is fundamental, I think, is that uh, a context is very important. And so if somebody uh, who, you know, maybe a monk or a nun who decides to try something like psilocybin has a very intense experience, it probably will have a lot of meaning for them. You know, a lot of people who try it in, in some, you know, other kinds of context can also develop a lot of meaning for it. And obviously, that's very different than somebody who decides to, you know, go to a frat party and uh, try some LSD and has a crazy experience, um, probably, you know, less likely to give them some kind of long-term spiritual impact uh, from that, uh, although not impossible either. So, you know, there are, there are lots of different ways in which people can have these experiences. Um, and, and again, some of them are uh, spontaneous, uh, obviously the, the title of your podcast, you know, near-death experiences or a whole other kind of experience that people now, not that we would recommend people to try to have those kinds of experiences. But, um, but again, you know, that's certainly, another, especially because you're not guaranteed, you're not guaranteed right? Exactly. So, um, but, um, but they, they obviously have a lot of, you know, the near death experiences have a tremendous uh, impact on people's lives and have really transformative in many of the same kind of ways as some of these mystical and spiritual experiences are. So, so there's a lot of different possibilities that are out there in terms of how these experiences may, uh, you know, may be obtained. Do you, have arguments with colleagues about these things. I shouldn't say arguments, discussions with colleagues who are very much in the camp of it's just it's just the brain. There's there's consciousness does not reside outside the brain. It resides in the brain, and without a brain, there's there's um, well, nothing beyond. Certainly, it. I've had those kinds of conversations with friends and colleagues. Um, and you know, look, I mean, I, I think that. Uh, uh, every perspective is it has a, a value to it of, of trying to understand it. You know, again, I, I even try to flip it around to that meta level and say, so what's going on in the brain of somebody who looks at this from a very materialistic perspective versus someone who looks at it from a spiritual perspective? You know, does that teach us something about what, you know, how people are looking, you know, even at the questions and addressing the questions themselves? But um, but I always appreciate when people have different ideas, different views. You know, it's always important to uh, learn about what people are thinking about. And, you know, I, I think it's important to be able to sort of reach to where people are. And so if somebody is very, you know, a very staunch material, materialist, I don't believe that that's a, a kind of person that you just start hitting with, you know, all the spirituality stuff. Um, you know, I, we let, let's start with the brain stuff. Let's start with, well, what's going on in the brain? What's happening with this? Okay, you know, now you get down to them saying, okay, well, then it's just in your brain. I say, well, okay, you know, but, but now, you know, let, let's think this through a little bit more, you know, if it's just in the brain. Um, and the brain is made up of these neurons, and neurotransmitters, and, and electrical signals, and you know different uh, interconnections and so forth. You know where in all of that is the thought? Where in all of that is the consciousness? You know how? You know where? You know the, the famous you know hard problem of consciousness. You know where where does consciousness come from? If we can't necessarily, you know, get there all the way and looking at from a scientific perspective, and, and if we can't fully get there, um, do we need to look at other options? You know, do we need to explore what Buddhism has to say about consciousness, what Hinduism has to say about consciousness, uh, you know, what other spiritual traditions may have to say? So, uh, you know, it, it's kind of trying to, you know, work at at people and trying to bring them in to understand that. You know, the same is true on the other side. There's certainly people who are very uh, staunch religious individuals, and they just don't even see the value of doing the science. Maybe we can say, well, there is value. You know, maybe there's, maybe, you know, maybe it's not going to 
prove whether God exists or not, but but maybe it can help us to understand something about the psychological value of being religious or spiritual. Maybe there's there's that's important. Maybe we can learn what kinds of practices are more valuable to people, um, may have a, a greater impact on people in terms of depression or anxiety or something like that. So so there's a lot of ways in which both sides can benefit from the exploration together. And that, that's what I try to do uh, whenever I have a conversation with somebody, especially somebody who may have a very strong opinion one way or another. I appreciate where they're coming from. I, you know, ultimately my, you know, my fundamental statement is always, we're all in basically in in a brain that's looking out at the world and trying to make some sense out of it. So the fact that people come to all different kinds of conclusions makes a lot of sense. You know, it would be quite shocking, quite frankly, if we came to, you know, the same conclusion as everyone else, Mm -hmm. much more likely that we come to different conclusions. But then by the same token, um, hopefully this area of research allows us to say, well, you know, then maybe we need to be a little bit more open and compassionate uh, towards people who do have different perspectives. And uh, and that's a lot of why I got into all of this in the first place. You know, I just, it bothered me that people had different religious traditions, that they're different political perspectives. How can we have such differences when we're all looking at the same world? Why aren't we coming away with the same uh, perspective? But but we don't. And, uh, and so trying to understand that is to me, Uh, kind of the fundamental piece of of why we do all of these things and why we ask these questions. Wow. Well, fascinating work. I I would like to sign up for your program. Uh, You'll be the first. Uh, It might also head me down the path of divorce, but (laughs) that's okay. Anytime I'm like, oh, I want to do that. My husband's always like, really? More? More learning? (laughs) The more, the better. Where can people find your information, more about you? Um, so uh, people can go to my website. It's just Andrew Newberg, N-E-W-B-E-R-G.com. And uh, on there, um, they can learn about my books and articles and, uh, and follow our future research as well. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And it was a thank fascinating you. conversation. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between. <laughs>